If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 this morning. We're going to read verses 35 through 45. Uh, In our, we're we're just kind of walking through the book of Mark. This is our pattern in this church, just to walk through the portions of the scripture. And uh, in our study last week, we saw the authority of Jesus. We saw it expressed in a kind of tenderness, wherein he is compassionate and heals. We also saw it in, in boldness, where he takes on the very demons of hell. We saw him lift Peter's mother-in-law from her fever bed and sickness, and he healed her. Later that night, he, he spends the evening with people crowding at, at the door of Peter's house. They want to be healed. They want to be rescued from the demons that have overcome them. And so the text that we're about to read picks up in the morning after that, and it picks us up in a desolate place, which is a really important theme for Mark. So we're going to read Mark chapter 1 verse 35 and while you turn there I'll just remind you that we believe that the Bible is God's word written. Uh, it is not man's thoughts about God uh, nor anyone's reflections but really God's word to his people. Mark 1:35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched down his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's word. Let's pray for his. We pray that in this word we might know you. That you would give us the ears to hear what you say. And God, though preaching seems like such an ordinary thing, reading on the page of the Bible and talking about it, we recognize that you have made it to be something which is extraordinary. And so we pray that you would do what you've promised to do, that your word would go forth and not return void, but that you would accomplish the purposes for which you send it. More than that, we ask, Father, that you would be willing again to use a wretched, sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you could have just a moment here on earth, face to face with Jesus, what would you ask of him? In other words, what would you want him to provide for you? Some of you might ask him for healing. Uh, healing from the pain that's in your body or maybe healing for the pain that's in your heart 
Others of you might ask him to cast out the, the demons that have plagued you for so much of your life. Lord, would you do something about my gossiping tongue or my sinful thoughts, my selfishness, my pride, or my addiction to this or to that, this besetting sin or that one? Others of you might ask him to explain the circumstances that have troubled you. Uh, Lord, why did this happen? Why did I lose this person? Why did I feel such massive disappointment? Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get the honor that I thought I deserved in that moment? Why did you allow that person to treat me that way? Why did you stand in the way of my plans and block my hopes? Why did you cause me to to have to sit in a place of waiting and waiting and waiting for so long? Maybe some of you would ask him, Lord, why won't you give me a break? What would you ask Jesus if he was here and you could speak to him right now? And then the second question, if the Lord was to answer your request in the way that you want it, would his answer to you move you in the direction toward him? In other words, in deeper relationship with him. Would you grow in your love for him? Would you grow in your longing for him? Or would you, like one who visits a vending machine, simply get what you want and go your way and never encounter the Christ and never need him again? And I ask the question that way so that you can relate to the impulse of of all of these watching crowds, how they think and, and what they were wrestling with but also so that you can relate to the reason and the way that Jesus answers the questions that are asked of him. Jesus does heal. Jesus does cast out demons. He does do miracles, and yet all of those things are meant to point you not to what Jesus can do for you, but to who he is, and then by who he is that you might see your need for him and place your faith more deeply in him. In fact, sometimes the way the Lord answers our prayers are meant to invite us into a deeper relationship so that while we do not feel that he has answered what we wished he would answer, we grow in love and faith. And so our text teaches us as you watch the Christ, you learn your need for him. Not just what he can do for you, but who he is. We're going to break down the text before us with two simple points. One, the desert he chose. And second, in the desert you learn. We start with the desert in um, the desert that he chose. It was after a late night, as I mentioned, casting out demons. Verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. If you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, that word desolate place has come up several times, especially back in verse 12. There it was translated wilderness. It was a a desert, a place that cannot sustain life. The Spirit of God drove Jesus out into the wilderness, out into the desert to be tempted and then tempted. Jesus perfectly obeys his Father. He actually proves himself to be the one and only faithful Son who's ever lived. And here you come to verse 35, and here's Jesus up early, and he chooses to go out to the desert to pray. Why? 
because there's nothing so satisfying to his soul than fellowship with his father. He loves his father. So he's out there for what his soul longs. And so you might wonder, now why does a man who is God feel the need to go talk to God? We could begin with the very idea of the pressures that Jesus faces in his life and in ministry. Because you know this, it's, it's sort of a universal principle. And that is the more that you can do for others, the more they will call upon you to do for them. Moms know this. Your kids are little. The more capable you are of helping your children, the more they will call upon you for help. But of course, the challenge is if you are the only one who can help, then you begin to feel the pressure of helping others. You should recognize here in, in the Lord Jesus that, that he is, while on earth, the only one who can truly help everyone, which means an, a, an extraordinary amount of pressure, the kind that would drain you emotionally and physically. Think about the pressure that Jesus faces daily because he can do so much for so many people. He's capable of healing. He's capable of casting out demons. And this is the reason that he's up late last night. As a crowd of people pressed at the door to see him, he's capable of doing anything for them. In fact, Jesus lived under the kind of pressure that you and I can really hardly imagine. He slept maybe three, four hours the night before, and he's up early. Why? I am certain that the pressure he feels is a part of it, but there's more and here's the profound mystery of the text that we just read, the Trinity. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity past have enjoyed a, a fellowship and a relationship of love within themselves. And yet, for this time, while Jesus is on the earth, you would expect, of course, that he would long for the very thing that he's enjoyed with his Father, the communion with the one in whom he loves. And I can't help but wonder if this was not the most striking thing that his disciples noticed. I, I mean, not that the son wants to talk to the father, because for sure, the gospels make it very clear, these guys don't have a clue that he's God for a long time. But rather, it is the fervency that he has that no one else has. That his soul seems to long to commune with God in such a way that he's willing to overcome all of the, the frailties of this body of earth. All the reasons that you and I have for, for not praying. Jesus has them all in spades. I'm tired. It is so hard to get up. And Jesus is tired too. He likely stayed in the crowded house with Peter. And Peter's wife and Andrew and their mother, Peter's mother-in-law and whatever kids are in the house. I'm busy right now, you might say. I'll, I'll pray when I get some things accomplished. I need to do some things. Well, Jesus, of course, is busy too. And there will be no end to this busy life for him until he ascends to heaven. Well, Jesus didn't have three kids. He didn't have four kids. or He didn't have six kids no he did not nor did he have a quiet room and a big house with air conditioning 
nor did he have a comfortable place to sleep, nor an alarm clock, nor a noisemaker to make sure that the sheep who are lowing out in the field don't wake him up in the middle of the night. No, Jesus had none of the things that you and I have as conveniences, but he has an intimacy with the Father. And that's what I think was striking. For those who belong to Christ, you should begin your thoughts and your plans about prayer with a sense like Jesus that though you might find a million excuses for why it is difficult to ever start to pray, this is what your soul needs more than anything else. More than you need your morning coffee. More than you need to check email. More than you need to check the the market. More than you need to find out about that friend from fourth grade and what funny thing they decided to put on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. More than you need to scroll and scroll and scroll through faces and people who are trying to create a life that appears to be something so much better, so much different, so much more glorious than yours. Your soul is deeply thirsty. And you're thirsty for uninterrupted time to cry out to the Father of mercies. So that instead of comparing my world that I live in to, the, to what my friend puts online, I need to thank the Lord in prayer for his goodness, for his kindness, for his faithfulness to you. Before you make your list of what you need to do today, what you actually need is to quiet your heart in his presence. J.C. Ryle said, if he who was blameless, undefiled, and separate from sinners prayed continually, how much more ought we who are overcome with frailty and weakness? What's he doing? He's out there for uninterrupted fellowship with his father for what his soul longs, but he's also out there to be reminded of what truly matters. Here's why. Everybody that Jesus is going to encounter has a different agenda from the one that God has sent him for and a different agenda from what Christ knows is the most important. Look at verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everybody's looking for you. And you should be very clear, there really is a tone of scolding from these guys. But even as they scold him, there's a a profound opportunity for temptation I mean, you can be sure that the people showed up at Peter's house and they were banging on the door early. And I wonder if it wasn't the third or fourth or fifth time at the door that they started to get tired of the interruption. Let's go find him so that we can make these people stop driving us crazy. And then when Peter and the others finally bring to Jesus the inconvenience that they have felt all morning, they say, where have you been? Why didn't you tell any of us where you were going. Moreover, if you really want this disciple thing to work, we're going to need some better communication than this. There's also an opportunity for Jesus to be tempted. Jesus, hey, the people are back. They want more of what you did yesterday. And I don't know if you can can see this, Jesus, but there's a real opportunity to, to kind of build something here, to grow your likes to build this following, there's a temptation here to, to win the praise of men. 
And Jesus would say, well, in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. To feel like I'm loved. But it's in prayer that Jesus is reminded what truly matters. And that is that he does not need the praise of men so much as he needs the relationship with his Father in heaven. So much as he needs to enjoy the one who really actually does love him. Not for what he can give, but for who he is. Paul Miller, uh, in his book, A Praying Life, which I do think is an excellent book, says this. It's kind of a, a long quote, but I think it's really helpful. He says, Jesus' example teaches us that prayer is about relationship. And when he prays, he's not performing a duty. He's getting close to his Father. And here's a profound connection. Any relationship, if it's going to grow, needs private space and time together without an agenda. Where you get to know each other. This creates an environment where closeness can happen, where we can begin to understand each other's hearts. And then he says, you don't create intimacy. You make room for it. That's true whether you're talking about your spouse or your friend or God. You need space to be together. In short, you cannot grow and get to know the Father on the fly. If Jesus has to pull away from people and noise in order to pray, then it makes sense that you and I do as well. Number one, he's there for what his soul longs. That's uninterrupted fellowship with the Father. Number two, he's there for what truly matters, the relationship that is so important. But number three, he's there for a reminder of his mission. Look at verse 38. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And you see this throughout the rest of the gospel accounts, that it is through prayer and fellowship with God that Jesus continues to keep his eye on his mission, though he can heal, though there's plenty of people who would ask him to do it in Capernaum, to do many other things for them. Jesus says, yeah, let's go on to the next towns. Because I came to preach the message of salvation. And it's through that message and the expelling of demons that the power of Satan is overcome. That's why Jesus seems to always welcome the, the, the fight with the demons. He welcomes the preaching of the gospel and the, the healing. Well, that's just another aspect of redemption. It is not nearly as important as crushing Satan's head, you might say. And so you notice the desolate place that Jesus chose. But what does that say to you and me? Well, I wouldn't press it so far as to say that you must get up early in the morning in order to pray as if it's the only noble or godly time to pray. I wouldn't say that you have to climb a mountain or get out into the desert and sit on a tree stump with just you and Jesus. But I would wonder if it's not worth examining your own heart, examining your own life of prayer. And that is if I don't pray, or if I almost never pray, or if I've actually never even thought of my need to pray, then what does it say about the condition of my own heart? What does it say about what I love, what I long for, what does it say about my own understanding of what matters and where my time and attention should go? Like, if you have nothing, 
or almost nothing of prayer in your own life at all, how will you ever experience the joy and the relationship that the Lord has made you to experience from all creation past? Which naturally strikes at a heart level too, doesn't it? As you watch Jesus, you realize how far short of loving your Father you really are. How far short of even longing to commune with Him and know Him you really are. And the impulse would be, okay, okay, Eric, I've totally heard that. I, I need to start praying more. But Jesus would invite you while you examine that shortcoming and failure and neglect to recognize how much you really need a Savior who really is this close with the Father. You see, Jesus is so much more than an example And that is that he is a savior first. In fact, the desert he chose is proof that you need a Christ like this one who would go out into the desolate places and intercede for you. Because you have desolate places in your own soul and Christ is is the one who goes into those places and there intercedes for you. And the the fact that he would go out out into the desert to pray reminds you and me that when I find myself in the the real life wilderness places. When I find that I, I have no interest, no willing to call out, willingness to call out to the Father, then what I find there is proof that I need a, a Savior like Jesus whose heart is deeply in tune with the Father, and yet He is so, so able, so willing to sympathize with my own cold, distracted heart. And so as you watch the Christ, you learn your need for him. The desert he chose, and now I want to show you in the desert you learn. Somewhere along the way, we don't know where. While he's walking through Galilee, verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Let me talk real quickly about the condition of the leper. We, we know almost nothing about this man personally other than that he is identified as a a leper. Leprosy, which is not super common in North America, was extremely common in the ancient world, extremely common in that part of the world. And it's a skin condition which results in the death of the the nerves at skin level. And if it's left untreated, that, that nerve death begins to move up deeper and deeper into the flesh, and it basically cuts off the the pain sensors of the body. And so what would happen is that gradually over time, the, the leper has no idea that he's knocked off his own finger or he's, he's lost his toe or his nose or his ear. In fact, it's a physical disease which is awful. But to go along with that disease, it is also socially and emotionally painful. To be clear, this is a man who has not been touched or embraced or hugged from the moment that he was diagnosed with leprosy. He's been a social outcast from his society. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 command that he's to live outside the camp. He's supposed to live away from everybody else. If he is going to come into the camp, he has to put his hands over his upper lip and he has to declare unclean, unclean, unclean as he walks in to the town 
On top of that, most people would have thought, well, he has leprosy because of the sin in his life. And so leprosy actually in the, in the Bible and what we see in Jesus' day, it becomes synonymous with, with sin. And that's how ostracized he was. Not only does he live this far away from everybody else, but it was even taught that if a leper is resting under the shade of the tree and you or I were to walk by the tree and the shade itself was to cover us, then you and I would be unclean and defiled just like him. You need to realize this is a man who hasn't hugged his mom or his dad. He hasn't hugged his wife or his kids for years. And this is the condition of the leper. But you notice what's on his mind. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And we don't know if he knows it by testimony or if he knows it by eyewitness But he knows for a fact, uh, Jesus really is able, but he's unsure about Jesus' willingness to make him clean. And now I want you to notice the compassion of Christ, verse 41. The Bible says, moved with pity, he stretched down his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean clean. Now those who study New Testament Greek would look at this word pity and they would say, well, that's not really quite what's here in the word. That's not enough. Compassion, which is a little bit better, is still short of it. What Mark tells us is that Jesus had something like an angry sympathy. Angry? Yeah. Seeing a man who is physically wasting away, emotionally, socially cast aside to the fringe of society. Jesus is angry about the fallen world into which this man lives. And yet at the same time, he is sympathetic toward those who suffer under it. I wonder if you don't need to sit in that tension for just a moment. That this Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his very nature is in fact angry about the fallen world. Do you see it? That Jesus is is incapable of being passive or neutral or uninterested when he observes the cursed effects that the fall has on this man who suffered under which you and I live daily. You need a Christ who is so compassionate because you feel the effects of the fall, don't you? You experience loss of loved ones. You experience debilitating diseases. You experience relationships that are strained. You experience sorrow. You experience grief and disappointment and you're constantly confronted by the fact that something about this place is deeply broken. That's why you need a Christ who is angry with what he finds here. Paul Tripp says it is the anger of God and the love of God that moved him to the cross so that sin will not triumph. His anger is actually the hope of the universe. Because it's the angry sympathy that drives Jesus to the cross. And at the cross, 
the perfect, righteous anger of God and the love of God embrace in a harmony for which our souls cry out. Which means, wherever the fallen world has stung you this week, you can actually look at the cross and you can know that Jesus cares. And though you still feel the sting of it, Jesus has done something about it. And it will not sting forever. Do you think it's possible that Jesus could have done this whole thing without touching the man? Of course. Christ touches the leper something that no one has done for years. And the leper becomes clean and Jesus does not become defiled. He, in fact, remains pure. And so in the desert, we learn this condition of the leper and the compassion of the Christ and finally the Christ of the desert. Let me ask you this. Doesn't the one who gives the the grace and the mercy and the healing, doesn't he have the right to expect obedience from the one he saves? Look at verse 43. That's why Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. And if Jesus' tone sounds severe, it is because it is. Because what he says matters to him. This is serious for him. Could it be that the all-knowing Christ gives this command with a full awareness that dude's going to go and run his mouth? Of course he knows it. But of course, Jesus does not want to lose the ability to walk into a town and preach the good news. Repent. Believe the gospel. He wants to avoid what one writer called a premature crisis of enthusiasm. Hey, look what Jesus did for me. So that he would be so overrun by people who want healing. And the message that brings true spiritual healing would be lost. To all the noise of people going, hey, my hip hurts. My ankle hurts. Say nothing to anyone. Show yourself to the priest. In fact, what he's doing is he's telling him to obey the law of Leviticus 14. And immediately look at this in Mark Immediately, says Mark, the man who experienced healing and mercy and grace disobeys. Verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out there in that word again, desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, to be sure, you can read this as unbridled zeal. And I am sure that's what fueled it in this man. But if you watch what that unbridled zeal did to Christ, then you will see what it actually is. Disobedience. In fact, it's a shocking moment of ingratitude. The kind of ingratitude that demands that you and I would look in the mirror Mark says, do you see it? This needs to be understood on two levels. Physical leprosy. 
and spiritual leprosy. The Bible says that all of us were, by sin, spiritual lepers, that we were the ones who were deformed and disfigured. And all of us were outcasts to the warm embrace of the Father. And all of us were, by the fall, banished out into the wilderness where we wandered aimlessly in our own sin. And the Bible says that the only reason that you even knew that you needed to come to Christ is because the Spirit sought you while you were still unclean. While you were a spiritual leper, He touched you so that you would know that this Christ is not only able but also willing to cleanse by faith in Christ. You received healing and mercy and grace And just as Jesus said to the leper, I will, I made you clean. You and I might say, okay, where do we go from here? And Jesus says, gratitude, obey my voice. He who loves me keeps my commandments. And yet in a shocking moment of ingratitude that you and I continue to repeat, you still disobey his voice. Do you hear the sermon that the leper preaches? He's applying it to to unbelievers and to believers alike. And the sermon is this, you need a savior once and forever, not just once, but even after you've been cleansed. And the leper would say, well, it was my disobedience that sent Jesus back into the wilderness. And you and I have to say the same thing if we are honest. After Christ cleansed me, it was my disobedience that I regret, that I hate, that I grieve, that I long to change. My disobedience sent the Christ back to the wilderness. Do you see what just happened? The two men traded places. And so from here forward, the leper That is, the spiritual social outcast is now cleansed and accepted and restored and purified, and he is at peace. And Jesus is forced out into desolate places. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For the sake of spiritual lepers, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so as humbling as it is to admit, you and I desperately need Jesus to remain in the wilderness. Which is why it's a theme in Mark chapter 1. Because the wilderness is the one place where Jesus proved himself to be a faithful son, something that you and I have never yet proven to be, faithful sons or daughters. And yet, while he is in the wilderness, you recognize that because he is out in the desert places, verse 45 says, you and I can come running from every quarter again and again to the faithful son. As you watch the Christ, you learn your need for him. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for the richness and the beauty of your word. 
for a Savior who is so compassionate, so angry over the fall, yet willing to send himself back out into desolate places to save unfaithful sons and daughters like us. And so we pray that you would cause your word to go forth and not return void, but transform us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.